Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. As we mentioned before, we are continuing on right now in our series entitled Becoming the Church. And today we're talking about, uh, well, this whole series we're focusing on the first part of the book of Acts. And so each week we're going to be encouraging one another to be reading along. And this week we were reading Acts 1 and 2. What we're doing in this series is we're leaning back as the church, leaning back into something that's ancient and timeless, a steadfast identity that we carry as the people of God. We're rooting ourselves in this moment when the church first formed as the next expression of the people of God. And that's a really important thing to remember, that this is a next expression of a steadfastness that was throughout all of the ancient scriptures as well. So we're in the first half of the book of Acts, but remember that, as we mentioned, Acts is really a two-part book. It goes along, same author, Luke, with the Gospel of Luke, and then this story of um, what was happening in the development of the early church in the book of Acts. So as a quick note, just for those of you who don't know, when I'm talking about a steadfastness and a a long bit of history, that history is that of the Jewish people. And Jewish people are marked with two things that are really important for us to remember in this this, uh, story context. They're marked with monotheism and election. What that means is they are a people of one God, Yahweh. In cultures that had many, many gods, They were a people with one true God, and that marked them. And then that's the second piece, election. They were chosen by God to be God's holy people. So in this context, um, their faith wasn't religion, so to speak. It was their entire identity. It was an identity that they carried, and they were marked by the presence of God. And where they worshipped was in the temple. That's where the place of worship was. And so quickly, we have a map of, um, okay, so I'm not very technically savvy. This is me taking a picture of my book with my phone, texting it to myself and inputting it. If anyone's better at this kind of stuff, I'd love to know. But this is why this is important. We've been talking about how uh, these were a people marked by God's presence. But remember, at this stage in their history, they had undergone two different long seasons of exile by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. And so the people had been spread, the Jewish people were spread all over. And so at the time of Pentecost, which is this this moment in the early church when, when the Spirit came upon the believers, the places named, look at these are faithful Jewish people from all of these different spots who have traveled back to Jerusalem for the to be by um, the temple's presence for their worship. And so that's what, I just wanted to give you the sense of like presence, temple, all of that is really important in a conversation about um, worship. So when they were in exile, they took their holy scriptures with them as sort of a portable land and temple for them, um, waiting for the return of the presence of God. That's what they were waiting for. So um, my non-techie self doodled a picture, and then Gigi made it for me. Gigi made me my graphic. Isn't that cool? Thanks, Gigi. So here's how it works in my brain. This is how it looks. Luke writes the Gospel of Acts, in which he tells, the, or the Gospel of Luke, in which he tells the story of Jesus. Uh, earthly life and ministry, right? And all of the Gospel of Luke is pointing towards Jerusalem. They keep going towards there. That's the centering spot. And then Acts picks up where Luke leaves off. Both books 
have the crossover of the risen Lord. That's the center of everything. And then we're in Jerusalem in the beginning of Acts, and then everything spreads back out from there. And so where the Gospel of Luke is centering down towards uh, temple presence, Jerusalem, risen Lord, then with the risen Lord, the book of Acts just explodes from there. And so that's how we sort of see this as a two-part series. And it's important because this is not a new uh, story. Uh, this is a next a next way that presence is happening. And so that's what we're looking at. And we've been talking about some of the things that marked this early church community. And today we're going to be talking about their active worship. So let's start there. What is worship? What constitutes our worship? It's really neat when we read Luke and Acts together as they are meant to be read because we see that Luke's gospel is high liturgy. It starts out with songs of praise that have been written. Um, and Jesus is a modeling person of prayer in key moments throughout Luke's gospel. Scenes of worship are really important to Luke. And in the first words that we read in Luke's gospel of Jesus' speech, it's the moment where Jesus is tempted in the desert. And one of the ways that Jesus combats the enemy's lies of misuse of scripture is to say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And that's Jesus citing Deuteronomy 6.13. So the theme of worship is throughout both of these books, absolutely. And so now Luke carries on explaining that this community in Acts 1 and 2 is a worshiping community. Now, really quickly, um, let's just talk for a moment about uh, like literary genre. And what I mean by that is, so we have to not look at a book that's written in the ancient Near East and put on it what we would expect from our history books. And here's what I mean. It was very normal. If you're reading some of this and you're thinking like, I don't know if this is how it all exactly happened. How could we? Well, no, a history, an ancient historical book intentionally does develop scenes in ways that are true. This is what happened. But they intentionally are also interested in communicating moral, political, or theological lessons. And so the description that we see of everybody doing this all together, selling everything, it is idealized. We actually know later that, that they did still hold property and things. So it wasn't as absolute, but that doesn't make it inaccurate. It, it means that Luke's teaching us. That's part of the goal of a uh, historian in this context is to teach us something. And what Luke is saying is that the church needs to recover these emphasis again. And he's saying that these features that mar marked the first generation, but number one, they're marked with the Holy Spirit's power and presence. That is always, always the main takeaway in my mind, that this is the story of the Holy Spirit's power and evidence. It gives rise to freedom and joy and to, um, uh, to leaning back in to these truths and this way of life. That's what Luke is getting at. And so let's look at the elements of worship described in our passage today. I love Willie Jennings describes Peter's uh, sermon here. We didn't read all of the sermon, but Peter, a simple person without higher education, a fisherman, gets up and just preaches, as Willie Jennings says, a message that has far more power than the messenger. It's clearly God at work through the Holy Spirit. And what Peter is preaching here is the story of God now seen through Jesus as he's just, uh, Luke has told us in the, in the gospel already. A little thing to note, again, in the whole line of these being a continuation of books together, a couple things we see. The apostles are doing miraculous signs and wonders. 
Those are the same words that Luke used for what Jesus did. See, it's a continuation. We are told in the beginning of Luke that Jesus, as he was growing up, in, uh, had the, um, uh, the community favor. Favor of the community was on him, and now that favor of community is seen in the early church. So this is all a continuation in the language. In any case, as Peter preaches this powerful message, people are convinced and they come to faith, they're baptized. And right out after that, we see these marks of worship on community. And that's kind of beautiful. The way it's positioned makes it seem like this is the natural fruit of people repenting. The natural fruit of this is this worshiping community. Verse 46 says, they worship together at the temple each day. In that kind of historical context, a lot of people belong to different societies or groups, and you would meet maybe monthly. They're meeting every day together at the temple, at the place of worship, and then they start expanding that. And we see their worship also going towards homes as well. So when we remember that this is the continuation of the Jewish people's story from ancient scriptures, what do we know about Old Testament worship? Well, first of all, we've got this beautiful book of worship called the Psalms. I wish that we could hear the tunes that they were set to. Wouldn't that be cool if we could worship the same way? And of course, they've also been translated. So some of the nuance of the Psalms, it's hard to know because some of the beauty of their original poetic wording is changed to us, but they're still beautiful gift to us. It's an ancient worship of God's holy people. We also have the story that many of you may have heard uh, of Jericho, this moment where uh, uh, Joshua is going and leading the people and they're going to go into this land that's been promised to them but Jericho's in the way and maybe you know the song from when you were young but God says don't worry about it just walk around and then lead out in song and praise and the walls came tumbling down and so we lead out not with might or strength but with worship to Yahweh worship to God and then in one that I extra love I'm going to read from 2nd Chronicles 20 this one is so, so beautiful. So backstory really quickly. Um, the people of God are in a pickle in a military way. And King Jehoshaphat is aware that they're in a pickle. And so he tells everybody to pray and fast. And he is expectant that God will show up. And God does. And one individual has the Holy Spirit come upon them. And him, it's a man, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he says, don't worry, the battle's not yours. God's got it. Here's what we need to do. Okay, starting in verse 18 in chapter 20. Then King Jehoshaphat bowed low and to his face, with his face to the ground. And all the people of Judah and Jerusalem did the same, worshiping the Lord. Then the Levites from the clans of Kohath and Korah stood to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud shout. Early the next morning, the army of Judah went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, on the way, Jehoshaphat stopped and said, Listen to me, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be able to stand firm. Believe in his prophets, and you will succeed. After consulting the people, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army. How cool is that? The singers walked ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. This is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. At the very moment they began to sing and give praise, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting amongst themselves. And it went on from there. How cool is that? That is probably the only place that a battle plan included, the worship leaders going out first. But it's the people of God trusting and saying that we are going to be postured in worship because God's got this, not us, not our might. 
And so we see in this scene, though, too, it's beyond their singing. Worship goes beyond that. Their worship was their whole stance. They went to prayer and fasting. They waited for the Holy Spirit to show up, and the Holy Spirit did through prophetic word. And then they gathered together, and they praised, and they went out from that place. That's why we really emphasize and honor our worship leaders. There is something spiritual going on when our worship leaders are the ones leading us in to temple presence, into God's presence, but in the spiritual sense, what that leadership is doing and what they're curating and leading us into is really important. So worship is technically defined. Remember, we're way beyond singing, but worship is defined as the act of adoring and praising God. That is, ascribing worth to God as the one who deserves homage and service. So, This used to happen at the temple because we were doing this in the presence of God, but now we see that changing in this moment in Acts 1 and 2. They are meeting at the temple for worship, but they also are starting to go and meet at homes and other places. And now we know that that temple presence is us, the people of God, the church. 1 Peter 2, 5 says this, and you, church, are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. This language is that continuation of temple presence and worshipful engagement with God for the people of God. Romans 12.1 says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them, your very selves, be a living and holy sacrifice the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. What that means is to worship with our whole lives, our whole selves. That's an active stance of living worship. Let your lives be worship. So what does their living worship look like? Let's look at this worshiping community. First of all, we see it's in their daily life. That's the first thing. It's not just on their Sunday mornings, well, there would be their Saturdays at the temple. It's not just then, it's in their daily life. Their community worship includes worship, sharing, friendship. This is not a group, I love how this one, um, one place that I read said, this is not a group of an aggregation of autonomous individuals, which is like a lot of bigger words to say. It's not just a whole bunch of selves. Alone, We're not talking about an individual experience. Everything here is stressing fellowship in worship, being together, having things in common. This is community. And so N.T. Wright says, Luke is careful to point out the landmarks. In fact, Acts 2.42 is often regarded as laying down the four marks of the church, the apostles' teaching, the common life of those who believed, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. These four go together. You can't separate them or leave one out without damage to the whole thing. So let's look at these four marks. What sound teaching? That just means that Peter is up there proclaiming what he knows to be true about Jesus from his experience. And he's sharing that message. Other people then will go and share that message as well. And we do that together with sound teaching so that we avoid malformation. We're all going to be formed into something. And we need to make sure that teaching is sound and biblical and rooted in scripture and not just some personal opinion. We want to be formed by the Word of God, the living Word of God, and by the Holy Spirit. Sound teaching is important as a community to be formed right in our worship together. Fellowship. 
Fellowship is really important to avoid isolation. It really can be hard to sustain a life of faith alone, and no one needs to go it alone. Nobody should go it alone. We are saved not only for someday in heaven, we're saved into a community, a community of faith who's there for each other. So fellowship is really important in, uh, in this worshipful living community. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper stays as a centering place because it's important. Remember my, my, well, Gigi's diagram. At the center of everything is the risen Lord. We have to keep the risen Lord in the center of all we do. We're not gathering as some society of tea and bubbles. It's really fun to have tea and bubbles, but remember, that's one component. We have to remember to be centered on the risen Lord, and that's why we take communion every week. And then prayer. Prayer because we are in relationship with God. And as N.T. Wright reminds us, we have to stay as people of prayer lest we simply forget that Christians are supposed to be heaven and earth people. What he means by that is that we are here in this place now, but we are um, experiencing tastes of heaven, of God in relationship through prayer. And we need to keep all of these things together. It's all worship. It's interesting to note in different traditions, some of you may have experienced this, you've been in different church communities or different church traditions, and you might notice that different places emphasize different components of this within their corporate gathering. For example, in an Anglican service, the highlight, the pinnacle, is the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. If you are ever in a charismatic setting, a charismatic uh, church, you'll see a great deal of time and emphasis on the music, the song, um, and maybe in a Presbyterian, the, the highlight of the morning and their gathered time together is sermon. I think there's great freedom for that. I actually don't weigh in on an opinion. I like to keep all of those components balanced myself, but I respect and honor that each of those traditions have reason for that, and it's beautiful. And so it's nice to think that we can have freedom to still not judge that, but to engage in different forms of um, highlighting different elements as long as we are keeping these elements together. And as I was saying earlier about our worship leaders, like Emily mentioned, she curated the songs for this morning, knowing what the message was going to be. We work those things together. What we speak, what we sing, how we participate in all of this, it's designed intentionally because we want to be together as community, aligning our hearts with our hearts, minds, and experience with words that have been chosen on our behalf. That's why we, we really want to trust the people who are leading us in places of worship because they're, they're taking words to form our minds and hearts together. And I love this thing that I notice in this moment of the worshiping community together. Yes, they meet in the temple and they meet together in homes. They share the Lord's Supper and they share meals They're expanding beyond. Do you see that? And they're radiating the Spirit's joy. They're expanding things beyond. Craig Kinnear says, whereas Peter's preaching leads to many converts on one occasion in Acts 2.41, it is the believing community's lifestyle that leads to continuous conversions in 2.47. It's really beautiful. It's a beautiful testimony. Our worshiping life together as community is living witness to the grace of God and the goodness of what Jesus has done. This is active worship, living, worshipful worshipful community. 
And we also notice through the book of Acts, I know I'm skipping ahead, but this series won't go as far as this, and it's really important. There's this amazing moment of worship in Acts 16. Later on, we fast forward and we have Paul and Silas. They've been imprisoned, and in a mob, they started a big riot. Well, not intentionally, but it all happened. And so they were thrown in, let's see, The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape, so the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. He was going to be in so much trouble. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself. We're all here. It was midnight. They were in shackles, and their response was prayer and song. And did you see what else happened? The other prisoners were listening. They were experiencing the worship of Paul and Silas in this awful moment, and all of them were freed, and they all still stayed there. There's something really beautiful about this moment and this power of worship. And we also remember in this passage, there's a, um, again, Jennings wrote something that I thought was really beautiful that reminds us that praying and singing are acts of joining, that weave our voices together with the desperate of this world who cry out to God day and night. Each time we pray and sing, we're joined to the shouts of joy and praise to a God who saves and delivers and invites us to take hold of divine power by faith. We're joining in with the same declarations of God's goodness that have come from so many before us and so many still around this world who are choosing praise in the midst of incredibly hard circumstances. We join in with their voices when we pray. What if our corporate worship knit our hearts to one another and to others who worship God? That's the kind of weaving and knitting together that I think is beautiful. And in all of that, with our worship, remembering that God is at the center of fellowship, of praise, of prayer, of teaching, of our response to the word, of the Eucharist, all of it. We want to learn more about God by opening up our minds to different ways that we worship. Different cultures worship in different ways. We get to learn how new ways to worship and new ways to experience uh, God. When our whole gathering, we start to look at it all as part of our worship. When we hang out over a Diet Coke after service and talk and share life. We speak a word of truth to somebody who's had a bad week. That's worship. We don't come into this space to listen to a talk. That's why we're reading scripture in between our weeks together because I want to hear what did you find in the scripture? What was challenging? What did you lean into this week? And we want to learn. We want to learn different styles and different ways of worship as well. Christina Cleveland reminds us every culture has knows something about God that we cannot know without them. And so that's one of the things that I want us to just consider. We are doing a work here as a community. If you're not on our newsletter and you want to be a part of putting your voice to this, I I encourage you to sign up for our newsletter. But we're going to to work on, on designing what our whole worship experience is like together as a community. Lucas Wright is helping us through that process. And I'm really excited for where we're going to go in learning and still being shaped. Because we want our experience of God to be expanded. And so I... In that, I give you a couple of really quick thoughts. When you think of worship and different cultures and ways that your experience might be expanded, I want to ask a couple things of you. First of all, 
We need to not judge others in their expression of worship. We need to not judge. Maybe we need to ask questions and see what it is that they're experiencing. But it's really easy to say that person isn't singing or is moving their body too much. I'm uncomfortable. Or that, that why are we doing journaling in prayer? Or why is that person kneeling? Or, you know, don't, just don't judge. There's somebody whose who's maybe main expression of worship is the Eucharist standing next to somebody whose main expression of worship is song with their hands raised. That's okay, it's beautiful. We don't want to judge, we want to learn. But the second thing I also want to say is don't, not to judge yourself. I think that sometimes we can look at someone else and feel like they're feeling it in a different way than we are. Or they're engaged in some way and you're thinking, like, is something wrong with me? I'm not experiencing what they're experiencing. That's okay. Be open to new expressions and new postures, but this isn't about your experience. This is about God. God is at the center of our worship. If you are sitting there and not feeling anything goosebumpy and someone next to you is covered in goosebumps, remember who's at the center of your worship. God. God is who we are praising. We are ascribing the glory due his name. So we are open to new expressions. As long as, again, they're true expressions. That's why we keep our fellowship and our sound teaching. But we are open to new postures, moving our body into a different posture. And be expectant over the communion table, in a prayer, over tea and bubbles, be expectant. Remember, if this is all worship, then this is honoring to God, and God is present in our worship. Our temple presence is us gathered together now, remember from those verses. Our living worship is giving our whole selves to God in worship. Usto Gonzalez says this in a book, uh, he's quoted in a book uh, called The Next Worship, which is great. He talks about how theology is just the word for like knowing things of God, learning the study of God, right? Theology. Theology is caught by way of worship. I love that. Too often the theme of worship is excluded or set aside from theological matters, when in fact theology and praise, doctrine and worship are so interwoven that if we separate them, they both lose much of their significance and value. It's exactly right. We want to see this as a beautiful woven tapestry of all the ways that our life together in community is worship, worship to God, what we do here. And the risen Lord is at the center of all that we are doing here, ascribing glory to God in our posture and our praise. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.